1: Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leder.
2: I'm Hannah Strong. I'm Lou Thomas.
1: And today, we'll be talking about the Oscar-winning Danish drinking drama, Another Round, the oh-so-indie French exit, and in Film Club, the caging alcoholic 90s classic, Leaving Las Vegas. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, hello listeners. Welcome to this week's show and welcome as well, Lou Thomas. This is the first time you've been on the podcast since the revamp and we're using that as a chance to reintroduce all our friends of the show. So Lou, who are you?
3: Oh, I'm an international man of mystery, an absolute legend in his own lifetime, Michael. You should know that. All your listeners should already know that. But uh, for for the massive losers who don't know that, uh, no, no, I I, I jest, obviously. Uh, I'm hilarious, clearly. No, uh, so basically I'm just a a guy who works at the BFI as digital production editor, uh, mess around on the website and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm also like a freelance film journalist um, for some stunning publications like Little White Lies, which I'm sure some of you know about, Um, sight and sound, do the odd little bit for Empire, write Blu-ray essays, um, you know, sweep the floors, um, clean the windows, all that sort of stuff, you know, Um, other than that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I cause a lot of havoc and get thrown out of places. I do that quite a bit
1: too. (laughs) Right. Well, Lou, you and I worked together about a year ago now, didn't we, on um, a video essay for the BBC on The Pub in Cinema. And so you're perfectly placed, I think, for at least two of the films uh, on this episode.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I have to have to admit, um, you know, I like the odd film, obviously. That's why I'm on this podcast. But I definitely like the odd drink and the odd pub too. Um, probably a, f- a few too many pubs and a few too many drinks. But we, I'm sure we can get into that later.
1: <laughs> yes, and Hannah, how are you doing? I guess it's all just the countdown to Cannes now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
2: pretty much. Yeah. I, I said last week that I was spending a lot of time in screening rooms, and uh, it's very much business as usual for me. I've seen some good. Um, we we there's a bizarre thing in the in the kind of uh, film industry where if you're going to a film festival, sometimes you get to see some of the films before the festival. Uh, I'm not going to say which ones because I've been sworn to secrecy, but um, very exciting lineup and. Can't wait to kind of get stuck in when I get to the uh, French Riviera. Now I've got all my COVID tests and paperwork organised, just kind of, uh, yeah, dealing with all the bureaucracy before you actually get to uh, the uh, Palais.
1: Mm. Now before we get too jealous and the FOMO hits us too strongly about you going to Cannes and seeing some Cannes films beforehand, gosh, <laughs> we should really crack on with this week's new releases. Up first, Another round. So here's a bit of synopsis for another round. There is an obscure philosophical theory that humans should have been born with a small amount of alcohol in our blood. That modest inebriation opens our minds to the world around us, diminishing problems and increasing creativity. Intrigued, Martin, played by Mads Mikkelsen, and three of his friends, all weary high school teachers, embark on a risky experiment to maintain a constant level of intoxication throughout the workday. Initial results are positive, but as the units are knocked back and stakes are raised, it becomes increasingly clear some bold acts carry severe consequences. So, Lou, you said you're a fan of, a little, a fan of cinema and a fan of a drink. So, Another Round is pretty much the, the, the biggest film about drinking in recent memory. What did you think of Another Round? How does that fit into your canon of boozy films?
3: Well, I, I'll be honest, I think it's a pretty strong example Um, obviously a lot of films, um, contain, you know, sort of basic drinking scenes. In fact, the chances are, if you're even thinking about your favorite film right now, uh, it's, it's, it may well have a decent, uh, drinking scene in, because let's face it, people like getting inebriated to forget their troubles and people like getting inebriated to, um, celebrate their troubles. So there you go. And obviously there's, um, you know, um, drinking can be a frivolous thing like it is in a lot of sort of high school teen films and it can be a really serious thing as we'll get into later with uh leaving las vegas but what i what i really like about another round is the fact that it kind of does both it kind of celebrates from from the earliest scenes it sort of celebrates a, a drinking culture and the drinking culture um but it also sort of tackles it in a more serious way as well so Um, like very early on, in fact, it might even be the opening scene, actually. There's uh, a scene where there's a kind of a rites of passage where uh, a load of teenagers kind of run around this lake and and, and and in like a competition. And when you do this, uh, obviously the film's set in sort of Copenhagen, but when you do this, you have to drink a case of beer on the way round. Now, that's a completely insane, ridiculous, and some would argue dangerous... um, Kind of competition, but globally and around the world, there are loads and loads of drinking games that go on, and we've all, we've, I'm sure, some of us and probably quite a few of the listeners have, have experienced these drinking games and done them. Uh, and you, you could argue to toss whether these are a good thing or a bad thing. But what I like is that kind of sets the tone from the start, and you're thinking, okay, so this is going to be a celebration of, of boozing, and. Of course, it starts off with that, you know, that the, the four chaps in it, um, Mads Mikkelsen and his three pals, basically. They're all teachers. They're kind of suffering a midlife crisis, I get, of sort of mini midlife crises of their own, really. You know, they're all kind of bored with their lot. So then they come across this, this um, Norwegian psychiatrist. Um, I'll try and pronounce his name right. I think it's uh, Finn Skaderud, Skard- something like that. And. Um, they, they find his theory like you said um, they've got to get 0.05 um, blood alcohol content is the kind of baseline and then they start going up and up and up and kind of you know drinking more and more and testing out and then soon they're at a stage where they're literally getting drunk at work now okay some of us have boring jobs some of us have exciting jobs but like getting drunk at work not a good idea right not a good idea at all so they so they, they do a lot of that uh, so yeah, so slowly but surely, slowly, slowly but surely, we see the good and the bad, and that's what I really like. The, the, the fact that when we see them having a good time, it's a really accurate depiction of getting drunk. They're falling over themselves, they're laughing a lot, they're enjoying themselves. but there's always this you always kind of feel like this could go drastically and terribly wrong. And of course, as we get later on in the film, it kind of does because uh, one of Mads uh, Mickelson's pals, this guy Tommy, who's the one who's 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 arguably the uh, the, the most vulnerable. I think his wife's left him and stuff. Um, he takes it a bit too far with you know perhaps predictable, predictably um, tough and dire consequences. And that is, and as we get later into the film, uh, we get the darker side of the isolation, the depression. And all this sort of stuff that comes along with a serious booze habit. So, um, mm. I mean, there's, there's there's much more to it than that, but that's what I do like—the fact that we do get the two sides of it, and it's it's quite unsparing in that in that respect. Uh, and the, the, the it's the performances of the, the four main guys are really believable. And um, yeah, there's there's I really enjoyed. it. I thought it was a very strong film. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it's so Hannah. This film received quite a lot of acclaim, not just for screenplay, direction, Mads Mikkelsen, you know, trying something a little bit, um, going back to more dramatic roots, perhaps. I can't remember. So long-term listeners may remember that we had a list of Hannah's lads. Was <laughs> Mads on the list of lads? I can't remember.
2: <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry, I wasn't expecting that to come up. Um, no. Uh, you know what? I've always thought that Mads Mikkelsen was quite creepy, um, which mm. I think you either, he is one of those, like, um marmite kind of actors I think you really like his his stick or or you you're like me and think he's a bit odd um so I've never really never really I, I can appreciate that he's obviously a very talented actor but I've never really um kind of been into him and um I was never like I didn't like Hannibal he did the hannibal TV show with Hugh Dancy and uh, Brian fuller and I was never never into that but yeah, I mean, I think if there's ever a film that would kind of make you a Mads Mikkelsen fan, it's Stephanie um, Another Round. I, I actually, I mean, my feelings on the film, I kind of, I remember seeing it at the Toronto Film Festival, but it was the virtual edition. So everything was um, online. And that's maybe not the best way to watch this film. Just kind of sat at your desk because you're like, you know, it was about nine o'clock in the morning. And I think I just wasn't really in the mood to see a load of like middle-aged men moaning about their lives and kind of having a pint. Um, I think it would have played a lot better if I was watching it in the evening in the cinema with a glass of wine or something. Um, but the thing that did take me by surprise um, was the ending. I'm not going to spoil what happens at the end because I think mm. it is like, you know, a real, um, you know, it, it, it comes kind of out of nowhere and I think it is the best bit of the film by quite a margin um and that for me was like a real showcase for like how kind of good Mads Mickelson is there's behind the scenes footage of him shooting that if you watch the film and then google Mads Mickelson another round um you'll you'll find the footage I'm talking about and I was just kind of blown away I mean this man he can really like move <laughs> and um I after like after that I was kind of it, it did kind of change my whole feeling about the film I was like oh actually maybe I did like that um it's one I'm actually quite keen to maybe go and watch in the cinema now because I feel like I didn't really give it a full shot uh, a fair shot rather um and I do I, I mean I like Thomas Winterberg I think that his adaptation of um Far From the Madden Crowd is one of the best kind of um period dramas in recent memory I think it's a really beautiful film. So. There's kind of a lot, in, a lot of ingredients that um, should have worked mm. for me, and I can fully admit. I think I've said on this podcast before that sometimes you watch films and you just know you're not kind of clicking with it. Um, but it's one I'm definitely kind of willing to give another go, and unfortunately, it is part of that like curse where it's a very successful foreign film. Um, you know made a lot of uh, kind of money at the box office I believe not a lot but for, for an independent foreign film it made a lot of money um and won you know won the best foreign film Oscar winterberg was direct uh, was nominated for best director of the Oscars which I think was kind of a bit of a surprise because that doesn't happen very often um and now it's going to be well we'll see if it happens but it's been slated for a remake with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, which I think kind of ruins it a little bit, you know? Like, you don't really want to see Leonardo DiCaprio slumming it as a, a a paunchy high school teacher. I think the, the beauty of Another Round is that, like, they're, they're all quite believable in these roles. Even even Mads is, you know, still Mads is still incredibly handsome, but, like, you do kind of think, yeah, he's this, like, washed-up sort of trying to relive his glory days figure. And... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of resentful of the idea that every foreign film needs to be remade in British, uh, or English, rather, for um, so more people can kind of, like, tolerate it, I guess. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's like Bong Joon-ho said, like, once you get over the one-inch-high barrier of subtitles, your world opens to so many more films. And this is definitely one where I think, like, if you yeah. can just pay attention you know, um, and I'm sure most of our listeners don't have that issue, but... I definitely, yeah, I think it's a good <laughs> no. advert for kind of international cinema.
1: I think I think you raise a few interesting points there, Hannah. So, first of all, I think this is impossible to remake because it comes from... It's a co-production across a few Nordic countries, and that is a culture where alcohol is much more present and doesn't have maybe some of the Puritan... Um, sensibilities that we have in the uk or the us so i have a feeling that there would be a more judgmental and tragic tone if it was remade if it were to be remade and the tone of the film is what's so interesting and it's your know, well-documented in interviews and the press we look <laughs> to the film that um thomas winterberg was inspired by his daughter to adapt this film it was originally a play and she died very early in the shoot and that made him want to change the tone into being something a little bit more positive really? and life-affirming rather than than, than dreary. So it ha- takes on this really interesting quality, which I think when you take it to, if this was going to be a bunch of, you know, inner city New York high school teachers played by Leonardo Caprio and Seth Rogan or, you know, whatever, it suddenly changes it very much. <laughs> it becomes something more like smashed the, the indie film from a few years ago, which, um, uh, Aaron Paul and um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead was in, which was much more, had had much more of that tragic arc. However, at the root of Another Round, which I find so fascinating, I do not drink. Um, and also I'm not a big fan of pub culture and drinking culture. Sorry, Lou. Um, <laughs> but I'm fascinated by it. And I'm fascinated by this philosophical question at the heart of it, which is almost a high concept concept. Um, the idea of if we introduced a little bit of alcohol into everyone's everyday lives, not enough to, to um, really affect their motor skills or anything, but just enough to get them a little, give them a little boost, what would that change? Uh, it's almost like a high concept that could be ported <laughs> around the world. It's almost the way I felt about Train to Busan. Train to Busan was a brilliant Korean film, but the idea of zombies chasing a train and the, the train being a microcosm society could happen. Oh, well, not in England, because, you, you know,
2: your train would to never turn up if <laughs> <laughs> you sat waiting on the platform zombies would come straight in you'd be stuck right?
1: <laughs> i'll have you know hannah the the, the five thirty train out of houston going to manchester on a friday night i've seen people <laughs> running down that platform bottles of wine falling out of bags <laughs> smashing on the platform that Absolute sounds like chaos. a mashup of another round well of train to be
2: so <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, let's put some scores on this, Lou. I'll come back to you for any final comments, but also your scores, which are in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. Sure,
3: anticipation. I was probably a um, probably a free because I was kind of kind of waver on my my Vinterberg. Uh, you know, I'm kind of yeah. Sometimes it's all right. Sometimes I'm just not in the mood. So yeah, sorry. Anticipation three. Um, Sorry, enjoyment. enjoyment was the next one, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I'd say four. Yeah. I, I, really, I really got a lot out of the film. And in retrospect, yeah, I'll go four again. Why not?
1: <laughs> Why not? Hannah? Uh,
2: I think it's probably threes across the board. Um, but I am, again, yeah, like Lou, I, I go back and forth on Vinterberg. I think he's had a kind of rough few years. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, that could, that four could, uh, that three could change into a four. I just need to kind of rewatch it. And that's kind of the beauty of festivals for me is that I know that I'm going to get a chance down the road to kind of give things a reappraisal. I definitely think it's, you know, it's worth seeking out, uh, regardless of whether you're a Mads Stan or not. I think it is like, it's, it is, it, there's definitely something there.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'd give this three, four, four—a a strong recommend for me. I think Mads Mikkelsen is is brilliant, but I also think that it's such a thoughtful film that does take you in very interesting directions. Also, a really interesting entry into the canon of sort of male friendship films. We ha- we're in we're in the middle of a golden age of female friendship movies in the in- indie space, um, but I haven't really seen many films that tackle male friendship like this, where there's a particular as you say, the midlife crisis, male mentality of let's go on this you know ridiculous project together and just seeing that seeing the friendship fray uh, across the film's been really it's a really fascinating one. but that is another round listeners let us know what you think if you do see that this weekend. Up next we have a slightly smaller indie film coming out of America, French exit. My plan was to die before the money ran out, says 60-year-old penniless Manhattan socialite Francis Price, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. But things didn't go as planned. Her husband Franklin has been dead for 12 years, and with his vast inheritance gone, she cashes in the last of her possessions and resolves to live out her twilight days anonymously in a borrowed apartment in Paris, accompanied by her directionless son Malcolm, Lucas Hedges, and a cat named Small Frank who may or may not embody the spirit of Francis's dead husband. So, okay, within that we have Lucas Hedges, we have a cat. I mean, Hannah, you are the Little White Lies cat correspondent, (laughs) among many other things. Um, Is this a good cat movie, a good Lucas Hedges movie, a good movie?
2: (laughs) Um, Okay, so so I actually, it's based on a book called Franchise It by Patrick DeWitt, who wrote, who's a wonderful author, also wrote The Sisters Brothers. So he's having a bit of like a film moment at the moment that didn't, Scan properly, but you know what I mean. Like, he's big, kind of P- Hollywood's paying attention. So, I had read this book before the film, and I was really excited because I think it's a really wonderful book. It's really poignant and like incredibly withering and just everything I kind of like in a book. So I was very excited, especially when you look at that cast, you know, Lucas and Michelle, but Tracy Letts as well. Like it is just an image in Poots. It's, you know, it's a real, it's a starry cast and a good cast. And I think that premise is very like, um, fun. The idea of Pfeiffer as this, um, down and out socialite going on the lamb is, is, is a very kind of appealing premise to me. um, so I was very in, I was very up for it and I, I was left so disappointed because I think it was that classic problem of when you really love a book, then you're obviously going to judge the film a little bit harsher maybe. And mm. um, I will say the cat is great, Small Frank is great, um, but not <laughs> enough cat action in my opinion. Um, considering in the book he plays quite a large role, there's quite a like hefty subplot. Uh, about this cat and it does i i mean i know that when you adapt a film you have to kind of lose some things from the book but I, there's just so much in the book that i think was kind of rich pickings and it feels to me like it, the film has such a glacial pace so i can't really understand why they removed so much kind of good stuff from the book it just to me it really felt like a kind of it could have been a lot sharper. It feels like a very like soft focus film that kind of doesn't get to the heart of the book, which is this real kind of like it's her like, you know, it is her kind of um living funeral almost. She's decided that she's gonna go out with a bang. And it is this kind of best best of tour around Paris where she's kind of uh Francis is doing these, you know, up to hijinks and meeting these strange characters and it all kind of um convenes in her apartment that she's borrowed and I just yeah I I feel it feels like a real kind of missed opportunity to me and then the most kind of um irritating thing is that they change the ending and the ending in the book is brilliant Mm. I'm not going to spoil what it is but the ending in the book is so good and um they alter it for the film and I was really annoyed about that so yeah (laughs)
1: Wow. So I, I hadn't read the book. So all I'd seen before this was a very compelling still of Lucas Hedges and Michelle Pfeiffer uh, decked out in, in sort of you know um, upper class New York finery <laughs> in the backseat of a car. And like this looks like the kind of indie film I'd see at a festival that I'd quite like. And that's all I knew going in. And it really is a film sort of in search of a tone. It starts off very much almost like... Squid and the Whale, the sort of eccentric, idiosyncratic family dynamics, but maybe with the pace and dry wit of a Witt Stillman movie like Metropolitan. But then there's a point, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes in, where it suddenly goes very sort of uh, much more, um, how ha- best to say this, much bigger in terms of its depict, you know, characterization, but also with certain cartoony elements to the um to the plot you before you know it you're having a, a sort of seance for the talking cat that has the soul of the dead dad in it <laughs> which is always lovely to hear tracy Letts's voice uh, but it's not what i thought we thought not the direction i thought we were going in um, and it and it then has more of these outsized characters coming in where michelle pfeiffer's flat that she's borrowed in paris almost becomes just the you know the this motel for various strange souls in in Paris. Um, But, but Lou, what what did you make of uh, French Exit? Uh, Were you a fan? Well, not to
3: um, smash my copy of Das Kapital down on the desk and bang it till Kingdom Come, but if you're going to make films about rich, annoying Americans, right you've got to do it in a skillful way. You've basically either got to be Whit Stillman or Woody Allen, right? Now, we can talk about Woody Allen t- separating the art from the artist, but that's for another conversation. You, you mentioned Whit Stillman. His films are great, right? And Woody Allen, you know, he does rich New York annoying people brilliantly. But there's not that many people who can really do it. This film is full of rich, annoying people, and literally you want to punch every single one of them in the face, right? And I, I'm I'm a big fan of Michelle Pfeiffer, and I think she's brilliant in this, okay? She's great, but it's like, ah, oh. And like you say, like you've both said, the cast is... The cast, any of those cast members, they're brilliant, but you put them all together, and somehow it's much, much less than the sum of its parts. You know, you've got a film that's about New York and Paris are both brilliant cities we know, right? There's so much you can do with them. Um, I, I was really disappointed. I mean, I, like... Um, I, I have to confess, I've not read French Exit. I was a huge fan of The Sisters Brothers, both the book and the uh, the adaptation I thought was... A, the adaptation wasn't as good as the book for me, but Patrick DeWitt, clearly his material is, is, is good for, for, for filmmakers, right? So, so fair enough. But um, again, I went into this with such high expectations. Um, and and what's, what's interesting is Patrick DeWitt actually adapted so he wrote the script as well as obviously writing the book so he presumably had quite a lot of say in what actually went onto the screen so you just feel like surely at some point he should have said to the director or, or, or when they were cutting it or whatever like guys you've made a real mess of this I don't know what you know you, you said about the tone being uneven when it kind of yeah, no. I was just like, like I say, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer is great. In in the, in, she's kind of you know the, that the socialite who's kind of you know fallen on hard times and all that. And again, that's such a massive cliche. Like, how many films are there going to be about like oh the rich annoying person who's lost all their money for because because they can't be bothered to like get a job or like do something smart to get their money? Oh, these people just annoy me. Sorry, I'm getting excited about it. You know, but uh, no.
1: Yeah, Lou, let's, let's uh, put your guillotine to the side for a second. But yeah, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer in this is, um, is really something. It made me think that all of the films that I've loved her in, in the past have been quite heightened genre pieces. You know, all the way back to Batman Returns, films like, I don't know, Stardust, yes. uh, etc. cetera. But um, in here, she is almost playing within this indie film like she has come from one of those films her performance is so big and she's such a firecracker of a character unpredictable from scene to mm. scene um so if i if i'd recommend anything about this it would be to go and see it for michelle pfeiffer's performance and um, hannah was that a highlight for you michelle pfeiffer or are you divided on her
2: no absolutely i love michelle pfeiffer i'm always kind of um hoping that she gets big roles and um i think yeah we're, we're put her next to a cat and it kind of always like works out for her she I think she's marvelous and I love her and she's an icon and I'm excited to see her in the next um Ant-Man film because I think she didn't kind of get enough screen time in the last one um Mm. but yeah I think she is like you know it's like um you have this film set and everyone's kind of at a level, shall we say? But then Michelle Pfeiffer turns up, and this—that you, I don't know how many of our listeners have seen Thirty Rock but there's that wonderful line from Jenna Mourney when she's like, listen up, Fives, a tennis speaking. <laughs> and like, that's <laughs> that's that's Michelle Pfeiffer's energy in this film. She's like, you know, she's just so glamorous and so totally inhabits the role that she's playing. And regardless, of, I know Lou hates these rich, annoying people, but you believe her so entirely because she just has that, that kind of that spark. And I think she's definitely, yeah, she's definitely the reason to watch it. And I think if you are a fan of hers it's it is one that I think you'll be able to kind of um endure the things that maybe aren't so good because she is so great and mm-hmm. I do think that Lucas Hedges as her son is great casting I think he is a real a kind of I the thing I would compare it to is and again it's another TV reference but um Arrested Development the relationship between uh, Lucille and Buster Bluff is, is exactly what this is, only this is kind of maybe not as funny as that relationship in the show. Um, but I do think, yeah, I, I think together, I maybe would have enjoyed it more if it had just kind of focused on the two of them and their kind of um, slightly antagonistic but ultimately codependent relationship, which I think is the real kind of crux of the film.
1: Yeah, there's there's almost one scene that I'd want to just completely lift out from the film, which is when they after living it up in New York for however long, they get a taste of uh, French table service in, in, in a bistro and trying to get the attention of the waiter who goes who looks at them and goes out and has a cigarette and very <laughs> methodically Michelle Pfeiffer just sets fire to the to the flowers on the table to get to get his attention. That and bit so... was in the book. Oh,
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah,
1: let's uh, put some scores on French Exit. What would you give it?
2: Uh, so it was a four in anticipation, definitely one of my. As soon as it was announced, I think David and Adam like sent me the still, and it was like, oh, this is one. This is one for Hannah. Um, but then a three, three. I don't think it's necessarily a bad film. I just think it's a disappointing one. I would expect more from kind of a cast of that caliber and a screenwriter of that caliber.
1: And Lou?
3: Yeah. I- in agreement with everything uh, you folks have said, uh, anticipation uh, it's anticipation free, I thought this, this might be pretty good, but uh, enjoyment and in retrospect, just two. And those twos are only really because Michelle Pfeiffer is great and, and the rest of it, nah, didn't, didn't do it for me, I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, three, two, two for me, um, but Michelle Pfeiffer stands should turn up for this. It's a great performance from her. So listeners, that's French Exit and Another Round, two new releases this week. Let us know what you think of them if you see them at the usual channels at LW Lies on Twitter or TruthAndMovies at TCOLondon.com via email. Up next in Film Club, tying thematically with Another Round but in a darker fashion, we have Leaving Las Vegas. So, first of all, listeners, if you weren't around in the 90s, as some terrifyingly young people weren't, let me give you a recap of what Leaving Las Vegas was about. So, when Ben, played by Nicolas Cage, goes to Las Vegas with the sole purpose of drinking himself to death, he meets a sex worker, Sarah, played by Elizabeth Shue, and they both vow to not judge each other's lives. This was a big film for Nicolas Cage in the 90s. While he was on the blockbuster Ascendancy, he won Best Actor at the Oscars for this performance. So... Lou, you mentioned earlier that this film tackled alcoholism in a bit more of a darker way. Um, could you just introduce us to the world of Leaving Las Vegas, please?
3: Sure. Yeah. So, the the, the pre credits alone, um, it's a very very quickly establishes who Nicholas Cage is. He's this screenwriter down on his luck, or or rather, I say down on his luck. He's an alcoholic. He he gets in a couple of embarrassing situations where he. He, he goes to a restaurant and there's a couple of studio execs talking to some actors, uh, and he kind of embarrasses himself and he has to borrow money off people. And if you've ever known any alcoholics or any addicts, then you, you see this a lot. You, you see people who they are always borrowing money. Oh, don't worry, this will be the last time, you know, that kind of vibe. Um, so it establishes that pretty quickly, and we see him going around the supermarket getting bottles and bottles and bottles of strong booze. And there's the inevitable scene where... He's in his office and he gets uh, he gets fired uh, with a, and he gets a payoff. Um, so straight away you're thinking, oh okay, this is going to be um, this is going to be a bit disastrous. This is not going to be uh, necessarily a very funny film. And of course that's the way it turns out. And it goes to Vegas uh, with the intention, of course, of drinking himself to death. Uh, yeah, and from then on, the the, the joy of the film. Is in the the relationship of these two lost souls. You know, you've got you've got um, Sarah, and that's as as he spells it, as she spells it out in the film, S C R A, um, and and um, and obviously Nicolas Cage, and they're um, yeah, they 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 vow not to change each other, and and he says to her, look, you can't stop me. Don't tell me to stop, and she doesn't. She wants him to, but she doesn't. Um, and really, this is this is one of the interesting things about the film it's it's obviously based on these two kind of stereotypical characters but this is done in a really honest harrowing unsparing kind of way the way they're developed like and and it must be said Nicholas Cage's depiction of a drunk you know he won the oscar for it and when you see it you can see why because he's um and apparently he researched he spent um he, he spoke to some alcoholics and he, he he went binge drinking in Dublin for a couple of weeks to sort of get into the, the rhythm of it. And he asked his mate to video record him, um, to video him so he could watch back. And when you look at it, there's bits where he's he's sort of manic uh, and there's bits where he's having fun, but there's also bits where he's, he's, he's completely exhausted and he's slurring and he's sort of half awake or whatever. And if, if you've ever spent any time around any drunks, which... I'm sure all of us. Have, Michael, I know you don't drink, but I'm sure you've you've you've, you've been around drunk people. The, the 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 depiction of of drunkenness and alcoholism is certainly one of the better ones I've ever seen on screen, um, and it is a really moving film in the end. And it's and what's great is there isn't a happy ending. Not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's definitely not a happy ending. But it's probably it's 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 an ending which is realistic let's put it that way um yeah i I was i mean i watched it i watched it two or three times and it 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 moved me again when i watched it this time
1: yeah so this was a film i would have been god maybe seven or eight or nine when this film came out so definitely not the target Mm -hmm. audience but i very very clearly remember this being you know known as a film of quality oscar contender and so on And then, you know, I knew Nick Cage from other films around the similar time, The Rock, Con Air, um, and then all of his films from the 2000s onwards that we know him for now. And I go back and thought, oh, this was this is the one he won his Oscar for. He's clearly doing something very different here. But the surprise for me is actually so much of the tricks of and uh, so much of the Cageisms are there on screen. So, Hannah, what? what do you make of Nicolas Cage in this film and also the film in general about a depiction of alcoholism?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it kind of goes without saying that this is definitely one of Nick Cage's finest... um turns I think he really is remarkable in it and he's someone that you know there's always a real it's a cliche about Nick Cage kind of going full Cage isn't it and I think he Mm. has responded to that in his very earnest way of saying well you know human emotions are over the top so why shouldn't I be over the top which is a very I think quite yeah it's fair enough and I think I always enjoy when he gets the chance to kind of channel his energy into something like even Las Vegas or Mandy where it's just the pure raw kind of human despair which I don't think all actors can do convincingly and I think Nick Cage can um I I know that I I was talking to a friend about this film a, a few months ago actually because there was a kind of Twitter prompt about evil films films that you think um have either mm. kind of had a very negative impact on the world or that synthesized something very evil in their um, like in the film itself. And I, it was really interesting because she has some familiarity with sex work and was saying that she really, really hates Leaving Las Vegas because she feels that the way it portrays sex work is incredibly damaging. And I, had, I hadn't I had picked up on this at all. Um, I think it's, I thought it was actually quite a interesting portrayal of sex work. So I think it does portray it as brutal and, you know, very hard and, um, but it also, I think that Elizabeth, she is, again, like, so good in this film. She really, you get that she is just completely sort of um, hardened and it's very much like Sarah looks out for Sarah. Um, and her change kind of comes around when she when they start spending more time with each other. So I guess I, I do, I, yeah, I can sort of understand that criticism that... Um, it maybe portrays uh, prostitution in um, a light that doesn't necessarily get to the, the kind of the nuances of sex work. And um, Mm. you have to kind of remember, this was made in the nineties and you know, maybe wasn't the best time for women in film or in sex work. Not that women in sex work ever have a great time, unfortunately. but I do think that she she was robbed at the uh, the 1996 Oscars for this film. It was a, it was a tough um, a tough year I seem to remember, but um, it seems crazy to me that Nick Cage kind of walked his category and uh, Elizabeth She didn't didn't get her recognition because I think she it is like a it's basically a two hander. I mean, you have like other characters who kind of float in. But it really is the two of them for most of the film and they 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 kind of like bicker back and forth and bounce off each other, but I think you totally buy the way their relationship kind of develops and the way that you know, I think she comes to realize that she can't necessarily um, stop him from going down his path, but that doesn't mean she has to kind of follow in his first steps. I think it is maybe a cliche now, the idea of like a woman saving a man in a film. But I like the idea that he kind of saves her whilst also going on this like horribly self-destructive mm-hmm. um, path. And yeah, I, I remember watching it. I watched it for the first time a few months ago, but I'd always kind of been aware of it but just never got around to it and was very, I I was so devastated by it. I think it's an incredibly sad film and uh, probably one of the most accurate portrayals of chronic alcoholism. Um, It's so unglamorous. And I think it really gets to the heart of how that kind of ruins your life in a way that I think other films maybe don't. I think we see a lot of films about alcoholics that are kind of a little bit more glamorous maybe, and kind of like, you know, there's that link between addiction and creativity and there's some films that maybe um make it seem like you have to be to some extent a drug addict or an alcoholic to be a genius whereas leaving las vegas just is like very blunt about how his addiction has ruined his life and it's led him to the absolute kind of the um the end of the world, which is Las Vegas, the end of civilization. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it is rightly held up as a classic uh, for good reason.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I completely agree with you about Elizabeth Shue, but let's just go back across that best actress category. <laughs> You're right. Very tough year. So she was her fellow nominees that year were Sharon Stone in Casino, Meryl Streep, Bridges of Madison County. Emma Thompson in *Sense and Sensibility* and the winner that year, Susan Sarandon in *Dead Man Walking*, which is probably the most '90s Best Actress <laughs> category I can think of, and uh, so many big hitters there. But I think it's, you know, rightly the, the sort of the crown jewel of her career. I think, and um, even though I do have some trouble going back to the '90s and fe- feeling that, um, uh, you're right, it does get to an authenticity It does get to a, a, a depiction of. Um, the despair behind it, alcoholism and all that. But to get there, it has so many 90s-isms, this sort of end of the century, end of history, were the only two lost souls in the uh, you know at the end of the earth that is las vegas the end of capitalism <laughs> it's, it's, it has so many of those tropes plus drawing that equivalence between the screenwriter who's uh, you know hitting rock bottom as an alcoholic with a sex worker that you know very kind of um, specific uh, sort of narrative tropes there too but a really fascinating one to go back and watch uh, lou before we wrap up um, since we have you on we've had you talking about another round we've had to talk about leaving las vegas very eloquently talking about films that get to the heart of drinking culture um, are there any other films you'd want to shout out if we wanted to go um uh, go a bit deeper well i've actually
3: randomly thought of um some older films of, of late. Um, so I don't know if you guys have ever seen Harvey, uh, the old Jimmy Stewart film. You ever seen that? Mm. Like, that's a completely different uh, boozing film. Um, but it's, it's you know, the guy sort of hallucinates and think he, thinks he's, he's talking to, a, I think, a big rabbit or something. Like that, I, 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 I actually really think that's worth sort of going back and, and, and discovering. And um, although it's not strictly... Purely a booze film, the uh, Humphrey Bogart film In a Lonely Place. Um, I, like, that mm. is a really, really good. Like, booze is such a strong part of his life. You know, he's sort of a bit of chewed up kind of guy. And I think that's a really good um, film. And those are two, two, two that I've been thinking about quite a lot lately.
1: Two great recommendations there, Lou. Thank you very much for giving us a cocktail of drinking culture films to go away and, uh, and imbibe on um, listeners let us know what you think of leaving las vegas i'm sure you have all sorts of takes on nick cage and the film itself let us know at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at lw hannah lou thank you so much for joining me today and talking about all these films next week marvel is back on the big screen with black widow we have martin eden as well a festival favorite from a couple of years ago and because kate shortland is the next filmmaker to get the big tap from marvel after excelling in indie films we're going back to her film somersaults Subscribe to us wherever you pod, and if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love it if you left one for us as well. See you next time.